Chapter Seventeen of Women in Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Women in Love by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Seventeen The Industrial Magnet. In Beldover there was both for Ursula and for Gudrun an interval. It seemed to Ursula as if Birkin had gone out of her for the time. He had lost his significance. He scarcely mattered in her world. She had her own friends, her own activities, her own life. She turned back to the old ways with zest, away from him. And Gudrun, after feeling every moment in all her veins, conscious of Gerald Cry, connected even physically with him, was now almost indifferent to the thought of him. She was nursing new schemes for going away and trying a new form of life. All the time there was something in her urging her to avoid the final establishing of a relationship with Gerald. She felt it would be wiser and better to have no more than a casual acquaintance with him. She had a scheme for going to St. Petersburg, where she had a friend who was a sculptor like herself, and who lived with a wealthy Russian whose hobby was jewel-making. The emotional, rather rootless life of the Russians appealed to her. She did not want to go to Paris. Paris was dry and essentially boring. She would like to go to Rome, Munich, Vienna, or to St. Petersburg or Moscow. She had a friend in St. Petersburg and a friend in Munich. To each of these she wrote, asking about rooms. She had a certain amount of money. She had come home partly to save, and now she had sold several pieces of work. She had been praised in various shows. She knew she could become quite the go if she went to London. But she knew London. She wanted something else. She had seventy pounds, of which nobody knew anything. She would move soon, as soon as she heard from her friends. Her nature, in spite of her apparent placidity and calm, was profoundly restless. The sisters happened to call in a cottage in Willie Green to buy honey. Mrs. Kirk, a stout, pale, sharp-nosed woman, sly, honeyed with something shrewish and cat-like beneath, asked the girls into her too cosy, too tidy kitchen. There was a cat-like comfort and cleanliness everywhere. "'Yes, Miss Brangwyn,' she said in her slightly whining, insinuating voice. "'And how do you like being back in the old place, then?' Gudrun, whom she addressed, hated her at once. "'I don't care for it,' she replied abruptly. "'You don't? Ay, well, I suppose you found a difference from London. "'You like life and big grand places. "'Some of us has to be content with Willie Green and Beldover. "'And what do you think of our grammar school, as there's so much talk about?' "'What do I think of it?' Gudrun looked round at her slowly. "'Do you mean, do I think it's a good school?' "'Yes. What is your opinion of it?' "'I do think it's a good school. 
Gudrun was very cold and repelling. She knew the common people hated the school. "'Ah, you do, then. I've heard so much one way and the other. It's nice to know what those that's in it feel. But opinions vary, don't they? Mr. Cry up at high close is all for it. Ay, poor man, I'm afraid he's not long for this world. He's very poorly.' "'Is he worse?' asked Ursula. "'Eh, hey, yes, since they lost Miss Diana, he's gone off to a shadow. Poor man, he's had a world of trouble.' "'Has he?' asked Gudrun, faintly ironic. "'He has a world of trouble, and as nice and kind a gentleman as ever you could wish to meet. His children don't take after him.' "'I suppose they take after their mother,' said Ursula. "'In many ways.' Mrs. Kirk lowered her voice a little. "'She was a proud, haughty lady when she came into these parts. My word, she was that. She mustn't be looked at, and it was worth your life to speak to her.' The woman made a dry, sly face. "'Did you know her when she was first married?' "'Yes, I knew her. I nursed three of her children, and proper little terrors they were, little fiends.' "'That Gerald was a demon, if ever there was one, a proper demon. "'Aye, at six months old.' "'A curious, malicious, sly tone came into the woman's voice. "'Really?' said Gudrun. "'That willful, masterful, he'd mastered one nurse at six months, "'kick and scream and struggle like a demon. "'Many's the time I've pinched his little bottom for him "'when he was a child in arms. Aye.' and he'd have been better if he'd had it pinched oftener. But she wouldn't have him corrected. No, wouldn't hear of it. I can remember the row she had with Mr. Cry, my word. When he got worked up, properly worked up, till he could stand no more, he'd lock the study door and whip them. But she paced up and down all the while, like a tiger outside, like a tiger, with very murder in her face. She had a face that could look death. "'and when the door was opened she'd go in with her hands lifted. "'What have you been doing to my children, you coward?' "'She was like one out of her mind. "'I believe he was frightened of her. "'He had to be driven mad before he'd lift a finger. "'Didn't the servants have a life of it? "'And didn't we used to be thankful when one of them caught it? "'They were the torment of your life.' "'Really?' said Gudrun. "'In every possible way.' "'If you wouldn't let them smash their pots on the table, "'if you wouldn't let them drag the kitten about with a string round its neck, "'if you wouldn't give them whatever they asked for, every mortal thing, "'then there was a shine on, and their mother coming in asking, "'What's the matter with him? What have you done to him? What is it, darling?' "'And then she'd turn on you as if she'd trample you under her feet. "'But she didn't trample on me.' I was the only one that could do anything with her demons, for she wasn't going to be bothered with them herself. No, she took no trouble for them. But they must just have their way, they mustn't be spoken to. And Master Gerald was a beauty. I left when he was a year and a half, I could stand no more. But I pinched his little bottom for him when he was in arms, I did. When there was no holding him, and I'm not sorry I did. Gudrun went away in fury and loathing. The phrase, I pinched his little bottom for him, sent her into a white, stony fury. 
She could not bear it. She wanted to have the woman taken out at once and strangled. And yet there the phrase was lodged in her mind for ever, beyond escape. She felt one day she would have to tell him, to see how he took it. And she loathed herself for the thought. But at Shortlands the lifelong struggle was coming to a close. The father was ill, and was going to die. He had bad internal pains which took away all his attentive life, and left him with only a vestige of his consciousness. More and more a silence came over him. He was less and less acutely aware of his surroundings. The pain seemed to absorb his activity. He knew it was there. He knew it would come again. It was like something lurking in the darkness within him. And he had not the power or the will to seek it out and to know it. There it remained in the darkness, the great pain tearing him at times, and then being silent. And when it tore him he crouched in silent subjection under it. And when it left him alone again he refused to know of it. It was within the darkness, let it remain unknown. So he never admitted it, except in a secret corner of himself, where all his never-revealed fears and secrets were accumulated. For the rest he had a pain, it went away, it made no difference. It even stimulated him, excited him. But it gradually absorbed his life. Gradually it drew away all his potentiality, it bled him into the dark, it weaned him of life and drew him away into the darkness. And in this twilight of his life little remained visible to him. The business, his work, that was gone entirely. His public interests had disappeared as if they had never been. Even his family had become extraneous to him. He could only remember, in some slight, non-essential part of himself, that such and such were his children. But it was historical fact, not vital to him. He had to make an effort to know their relation to him. Even his wife barely existed. She indeed was like the darkness, like the pain within him. By some strange association, the darkness that contained the pain, and the darkness that contained his wife, were identical. All his thoughts and understandings became blurred and fused, and now his wife and the consuming pain were the same dark secret power against him that he never faced. He never drove the dread out of its lair within him. He only knew that there was a dark place, and something inhabiting this darkness, which issued from time to time and rent him. But he dared not penetrate and drive the beast into the open. He had rather ignore its existence. Only in his vague way the dread was his wife, the destroyer. And it was the pain, the destruction, a darkness which was one and both. He very rarely saw his wife. She kept her room. Only occasionally she came forth, with her head stretched forward, and in her low, possessed voice, 
she asked him how he was, and he answered her, in the habit of more than thirty years, "'Well, I don't think I'm any the worse, dear.' But he was frightened of her, underneath this safeguard of habit. Frightened, almost to the verge of death. But all his life he had been so constant to his lights, he had never broken down. He would die even now without breaking down, without knowing what his feelings were towards her. All his life he had said, Poor Christiana, she has such a strong temper. With unbroken will he had stood by this position with regard to her. He had substituted pity for all his hostility. Pity had been his shield and his safeguard, and his infallible weapon. And still, in his consciousness, he was sorry for her. Her nature was so violent and so impatient. But now his pity with his life was wearing thin, and the dread almost amounting to horror was rising into being. But before the armour of his pity really broke, he would die, as an insect when its shell is cracked. This was his final resource. Others would live on and know the living death, the ensuing process of hopeless chaos. He would not. He denied death its victory. He had been so constant to his lights, so constant to charity and to his love for his neighbour. Perhaps he had loved his neighbour even better than himself, which is going one further than the commandment. Always this flame had burned in his heart, sustaining him through everything, the welfare of the people. He was a large employer of labour, he was a great mine-owner, and he had never lost this from his heart, that in Christ he was one with his workmen. Nay, he had felt inferior to them, as if they, through poverty and labour, were nearer to God than he. He had always the unacknowledged belief that it was his workmen, the miners, who held in their hands the means of salvation. To move nearer to God, he must move towards his miners, his life must gravitate towards theirs. They were, unconsciously, his idol, his God-made manifest. In them he worshipped the highest, the great, sympathetic, mindless Godhead of humanity. And all the while his wife had opposed him, like one of the great demons of hell. Strange, like a bird of prey, with the fascinating beauty and abstraction of a hawk. She had beat against the bars of his philanthropy, and like a hawk in a cage she had sunk into silence. By force of circumstance, because all the world combined to make the cage unbreakable, he had been too strong for her. He had kept her prisoner. And because she was his prisoner, his passion for her had always remained keen as death. He had always loved her, loved her with intensity. Within the cage she was denied nothing, she was given all licence. But she had gone almost mad. 
of wild and overweening temper she could not bear the humiliation of her husband's soft, half-appealing kindness to everybody. He was not deceived by the poor. He knew they came and sponged on him, and whined to him, the worst sort. The majority, luckily for him, were much too proud to ask for anything, much too independent to come knocking at his door. But in Beldover, as everywhere else, there were the whining, parasitic, foul human beings who come crawling after charity, and feeding on the living body of the public like lice. A kind of fire would go over Christiana Cry's brain as she saw two more pale-faced, creeping women in objectionable black clothes cringing lugubriously up the drive to the door. She wanted to set the dogs on them. Hi, Rip! Hi, Ring! Ranger! Atom boys! Set em off! But Crowther, the butler, with all the rest of the servants, was Mr. Cry's man. Nevertheless, when her husband was away, she would come down like a wolf on the crawling supplicants. "'What do you people want? There is nothing for you here. You have no business on the drive at all. Simpson, drive them away, and let no more of them through the gate.' The servants had to obey her, and she would stand watching with an eye like the eagle's, whilst the groom in clumsy confusion drove the lugubrious persons down the drive, as if they were rusty fowls scuttling before him. But they learned to know from the lodge-keeper when Mrs. Cry was away, and they timed their visits. How many times in the first years would Crowther knock softly at the door? Person to see you, sir. What name? Grocock, sir. What do they want? The question was half impatient, half gratified. He liked hearing appeals to his charity. About a child, sir. Show them into the library, and tell them they shouldn't come after eleven o'clock in the morning. Why do you get up from dinner? Send them off, his wife would say abruptly. Oh, I can't do that. It's no trouble just to hear what they have to say. How many more have been here to-day? Why don't you establish open house for them? They would soon oust me and the children. You know, dear, it doesn't hurt me to hear what they have to say. And if they really are in trouble, well, it is my duty to help them out of it. It's your duty to invite all the rats in the world to gnaw at your bones. Come, Christiana, it isn't like that. Don't be uncharitable. But she suddenly swept out of the room and out to the study. There sat the meagre charity-seekers, looking as if they were at the doctor's. Mr. Cry can't see you. He can't see you at this hour. Do you think he is your property, that you can come whenever you like? You must go away. There is nothing for you here. The poor people rose in confusion, but Mr. Cry, pale and black-bearded and deprecating, came behind her, saying, "'Yes, I don't like you coming as late as this. I'll hear any of you in the morning part of the day, but I can't really do with you after.' "'What's amiss, then, Gittins? How is your missus?' "'Ah, oh, she's sunk very low, Mr. Cry. She's almost gone. She's—' Sometimes—' It seemed to Mrs. Cry as if her husband were some subtle funeral bird, 
feeding on the miseries of the people. It seemed to her he was never satisfied unless there was some sordid tale being poured out to him, which he drank in with a sort of mournful, sympathetic satisfaction. He would have no raison d'etre if there were no lugubrious miseries in the world, as an undertaker would have no meaning if there were no funerals. Mrs. Cry recoiled back upon herself. She recoiled away from this world of creeping democracy. A band of tight, baleful exclusion fastened round her heart. Her isolation was fierce and hard. Her antagonism was passive, but terribly pure, like that of a hawk in a cage. As the years went on, she lost more and more count of the world. She seemed wrapped in some glittering abstraction, almost purely unconscious. She would wander about the house and about the surrounding country, staring keenly and seeing nothing. She rarely spoke. She had no connection with the world. And she did not even think. She was consumed in a fierce tension of opposition, like the negative pole of a magnet. And she bore many children, for as time went on she never opposed her husband in word or deed. She took no notice of him externally. She submitted to him, let him take what he wanted, and do as he wanted with her. She was like a hawk that sullenly submits to everything. The relation between her and her husband was wordless and unknown, but it was deep, awful, a relation of utter interdestruction. And he who triumphed in the world, he became more and more hollow in his vitality. The vitality was bled from within him, as by some hemorrhage. She was hulked like a hawk in a cage, but her heart was fierce and undiminished within her, though her mind was destroyed. So to the last he would go to her, and hold her in his arms sometimes, before his strength was all gone. The terrible, white, destructive light that burned in her eyes only excited and roused him, till he was bled to death, and then he dreaded her more than anything. But he always said to himself how happy he had been, how he had loved her with a pure and consuming love ever since he had known her. And he thought of her as pure, chaste, the white flame which was known to him alone, the flame of her sex, was a white flower of snow to his mind. She was a wonderful white snow-flower, which he had desired infinitely. And now he was dying, with all his ideas and interpretations intact. They would only collapse when the breath left his body. Till then they would be pure truths for him. Only death would show the perfect completeness of the lie. Till death she was his white snow-flower. He had subdued her, and her subjugation was to him an infinite chastity in her, a virginity which he could never break, 
and which dominated him as by a spell. She had let go the outer world, but within herself she was unbroken and unimpaired. She only sat in her room like a moping, dishevelled hawk, motionless, mindless. Her children, for whom she had been so fierce in her youth, now meant scarcely anything to her. She had lost all that. She was quite by herself. Only Gerald, the gleaming, had some existence for her. But of late years, since he had become head of the business, he too was forgotten. Whereas the father, now he was dying, turned for compassion to Gerald. There had always been opposition between the two of them. Gerald had feared and despised his father, and to a great extent had avoided him all through boyhood and young manhood. And the father had felt very often a real dislike of his eldest son, which, never wanting to give way to, he had refused to acknowledge. He had ignored Gerald as much as possible, leaving him alone. Since, however, Gerald had come home, and assumed responsibility in the firm, and had proved such a wonderful director, the father, tired and weary of all outside concerns, had put all his trust of these things in his son, implicitly, leaving everything to him, and assuming a rather touching dependence on the young enemy. This immediately roused a poignant pity and allegiance in Gerald's heart, always shadowed by contempt and by unadmitted enmity. For Gerald was in reaction against charity, and yet he was dominated by it. It assumed supremacy in the inner life, and he could not confute it. So he was partly subject to that which his father stood for, but he was in reaction against it. Now he could not save himself. A certain pity and grief and tenderness for his father overcame him, in spite of the deeper, more sullen hostility. The father won shelter from Gerald through compassion, but for love he had Winifred. She was his youngest child. She was the only one of his children whom he had ever closely loved, and her he loved with all the great, overweening, sheltering love of a dying man. He wanted to shelter her infinitely, infinitely, to wrap her in warmth and love and shelter perfectly. If he could save her, she should never know one pain, one grief, one hurt. He had been so right all his life, so constant in his kindness and his goodness, and this was his last passionate righteousness, his love for the child Winifred. Some things troubled him yet. The world had passed away from him as his strength ebbed. There were no more poor and injured and humble to protect and succour. These were all lost to him. There were no more sons and daughters to trouble him and to weigh on him as an unnatural responsibility. These two had faded out of reality. All these things had fallen out of his hands and left him free. 
there remained the covert fear and horror of his wife, as she sat mindless and strange in her room, or as she came forth with slow, prowling step, her head bent forward. But this he put away. Even his life-long righteousness, however, would not quite deliver him from the inner horror. Still, he could keep it sufficiently at bay. It would never break forth openly. Death would come first. Then there was Winifred. If only he could be sure about her, if only he could be sure. Since the death of Diana and the development of his illness, his craving for surety with regard to Winifred amounted almost to obsession. It was as if, even dying, he must have some anxiety, some responsibility of love, of charity, upon his heart. She was an odd, sensitive, inflammable child, having her father's dark hair and quiet bearing, but being quite detached, momentaneous. She was like a changeling, indeed, as if her feelings did not matter to her, really. She often seemed to be talking and playing, like the gayest and most childish of children. She was full of the warmest, most delightful affection for a few things, for her father, and for her animals in particular. But if she heard that her beloved kitten Leo had been run over by the motor-car, she put her head on one side, and replied, with a faint contraction like resentment on her face, "'Has he?' then she took no more notice. She only disliked the servant who would force bad news on her, and wanted her to be sorry. She wished not to know, and that seemed her chief motive. She avoided her mother, and most of the members of her family. She loved her daddy, because he wanted her always to be happy, and because he seemed to become young again, and irresponsible in her presence. She liked Gerald, because he was so self-contained. She loved people who would make life a game for her. She had an amazing instinctive critical faculty, and was a pure anarchist, a pure aristocrat, at once. For she accepted her equals wherever she found them, and she ignored with blithe indifference her inferiors, whether they were her brothers and sisters, or whether they were wealthy guests of the house, or whether they were the common people or the servants. She was quite single and by herself, deriving from nobody. It was as if she were cut off from all purpose or continuity, and existed simply moment by moment. The father, as by some strange final illusion, felt as if all his fate depended on his ensuring to Winifred her happiness. She, who could never suffer, because she never formed vital connections, she, who could lose the dearest things of her life, and be just the same the next day, the whole memory dropped out as if deliberately, she, whose will was so strangely and easily free, anarchistic, almost nihilistic, who, like a soulless bird, flits on its own will, without attachment or responsibility beyond the moment, who in her every motion snapped the threads of serious relationship with blithe, free hands, 
really nihilistic, because never troubled, she must be the object of her father's final passionate solicitude. When Mr. Cry heard that Gudrun Brangwen might come, to help Winifred with her drawing and modelling, he saw a road to salvation for his child. He believed that Winifred had talent. He had seen Gudrun, he knew that she was an exceptional person. He could give Winifred into her hands as into the hands of a right being. Here was a direction and a positive force to be lent to his child. He need not leave her directionless and defenceless. If he could but graft the girl onto some tree of utterance before he died, he would have fulfilled his responsibility, and here it could be done. He did not hesitate to appeal to Gudrun. End of the first part of chapter 17 Recording by Ruth Golding